Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Stephanie Cohen, Goldman Sachs' Chief Strategy Officer, and I'm excited to be joined by Beth Comstock. Beth has built a fantastic career path from publicist to chief marketer to the first female vice chair at General Electric. In her nearly three decades at GE, she led efforts to accelerate growth and innovation, including GE's digital and clean energy transformation. Since leaving GE last year, Beth has written her first book, Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you all for having me. So, so why don't we take a step back kind of earlier in your career, maybe right after you, you, you graduated and you were thinking about having a career in journalism. How did you take that storytelling expertise and really use that for your career? Yeah, well, I thought I was going to go to um, medical school. I was a biology major, um, which makes perfect sense for the career I've had, don't you think? And, I, um, and I, I was not a very good journalist, as it turns out. I lacked, I just, I lacked a fundamental thing, which was confidence. Um, I mean, I could. T I, I did tried out for crazy jobs. Like I tried out for a weather person job, and I didn't know the name of the. I didn't know how to pronounce the name of the town. I mean, I did not do very well uh, as a would-be journalist. And so, pretty quickly, the decision was made that I would go behind the scenes, um, and I landed in the publicity department eventually at um, at NBC News. And so, I just think it, it wasn't honestly until I put the book together that I thought realized that storytelling has been this big theme for me through my life. Um, certainly when you think of public relations and even marketing, you think of story, but perhaps less so when you think about strategy and innovation. Um, but I really do think your ability to, to connect, to tell a story, is at the heart of, of good strategy. Um, so to me, that's where I've kind of seen this thread through my whole career. Story, to me, is almost everything in a sense of it's, what, it's where you came from, it's where you're going, it's what connects you, it's what makes you relevant. And I think in business, we often think that's what you do at the end. To me, it's where you start. Strategy is a story well Strategy told. Strategy is a story well told. That's one of my, my things in the book. And I, I believe that, because if you can't tell a story, how can you possibly sell anything? So you've built your career as a change maker. I think everyone would agree that, that that's not easy. Um, it's not easy in a big company, but it's not easy anywhere. But what might be surprising is that you're an introvert, or you, you call yourself an introvert. Can you talk about how that's influenced your career, what you think the advantages actually are? Yeah, um, it's something I've had to really work to overcome in the course of my career. Um, just being shy, reserved, and introverted, they're all different. But at, at, a, at the end of the day, introversion, um, for me, was about um, just being more quiet, about being more of an observer, a listener. Um, no one would ever call me the life of the party. Even still today, they won't call me that. Um, I, I have a story I'm happy to share that's from the book, and I kind of take you back to me, 30 years old, which was only yesterday, but me, 30 years old, and I was working at Turner Broadcasting. Ted Turner, you may, some of you may remember him, kind of the Richard Branson of his day, the swashbuckling media titan. And I had worked there for a year, uh, heading communications at CNN and Turner, and he got a lot of awards. I worked there for a year, and he didn't know my name. Um, and I worked with him. 
And I remember standing at the UN and thinking like, I did a good job, but this has got to stop. This guy does not know my name. And I got to change this. So um, he goes into the men's room and I go, now's my, now's my moment, as one does when your boss goes into the bathroom. He comes out, I go, hi, Ted, I'm bad. I didn't know, I didn't say my name. Hi, Ted, I'm, he looked at me, shaked my hand. His hand was really wet, by the way, but he shook my hand. He looked at me like, what do you got to say for yourself? I lost my nerve, I looked down, he walked away, and he never knew my name. But I tell you that story and I put it in the book because it was a defining moment for me because I was so proud of myself. Here I was, sort of shy, introverted, and as awkward as it was, I gave myself kind of permission to get out there and tell him, my, and not tell him my name, but just introduce myself. So that was how I started to reckon with it, sort of at that early career point where I realized I was standing in my way the fact that I wasn't putting myself out there was holding me back, and the only one that was going to change that was me. That being said, I think introverts, and I've, I, I, I talk about a lot because I don't think we talk about this, I think introverts have a place in our company. Business is very extroverted. Um, and what I've liked about the style I think I bring, colleagues who are introverted, is we are good observers, we are good listeners, we're good at synthesizing. I, uh, I worked with a couple of great managers who appreciated that, and when I wouldn't talk up at the end, they'd say, Beth, what do you have to say? Do you have an idea? So I, I put it out there as just a sign of difference, and I think we all need to challenge ourselves to say, do we have enough different styles and perspectives? And the people who are quiet, it doesn't mean they're not interested. It doesn't mean they don't know what they're doing. It just means they're quiet. So we've all managed uh, introverts, and I like the permission slip idea. So can you maybe walk through yeah. how that works? So this idea, I mean, I almost, I called my book Imagine It Forward, uh, forward for a lot of reasons. One was just trying to focus on the creative problem solving, the need for more imagination. But I could have called it permission granted, and I almost did. Because to me, it's this underlying issue that, is, that it happens in most organizations, and it was what I just shared with you in the Ted Turner story, that we are often looking for somebody to tell us it's okay to take a small risk. And so I found this over the course of a career. I'd see people come in with great ideas, they'd pitch it, and they'd get told no and you never hear from them again. C-suite, just starting out. And you're like, well, I thought you liked that idea. And the excuses often you get from, I'd get from colleagues is, I can't do that, why? My boss won't let me. Did you ask? No, but I know, I know she won't let me. The investors won't let me. The board won't let me. I don't have enough money. I don't have the right background. I don't have the right skills. And often when you peeled that back, what people were saying is, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to try something, I'm afraid to take a risk. And I did a session much like this at our Crotonville facility at GE, early to mid-career people, and finally I would start to say like, somehow I have a feeling that even if I gave you permission, if we worked together, you still wouldn't do it. So I started giving out these permission slips and I kept a stack on my office. Simple ones like you probably used in high school, like you know, forged your mother's name to get out of phys ed or chemistry. I never did because I was too much of a goody two-shoes to even do that, but I made up for it. And, um, and that's what I would give out, like just a simple, silly, really silly device, just to say I give myself permission to go ask Ted Turner a question, uh, introduce Ted, myself to Ted Turner or whatever. And it's really just this little mental hack and it, it only matters to you. And in fact, if you told many people you were afraid to do that, they'd probably think you were crazy. But it's just that little hack of just, just try it. Just give yourself a, a bit of permission. And so that's, that's what's behind that. And really at the heart of it, I think for all of us is just 
behavior change, it's mindset shift. And so something like that is just a quick mindset shift to go, oh yeah, I'm gonna give myself permission to do this. Okay, so now you've given yourself permission, but I think we've also all run into what you call gatekeepers in your book, which is people who may get in your way in terms of where you wanna go, where you wanna get the company to go. How do you navigate that? Yeah, I, this framework I like a lot of gatekeepers versus goalkeepers. And for the soccer fans in the world, I'm talking about goalkeepers very differently. These are people who help you make the goal. <laughs> and the gatekeepers are the ones who protect you from going through the gate. And we've all worked with them. In fact, when Stephanie said gatekeeper, my guess is you probably conjured up an image of some odious person in your, in your background. Um, maybe it was even you at some point that you wouldn't let someone go through with an idea. And so I think all of us have this experience and I just, I got frustrated by it. And I'm an unlikely, I'm not a natural rebel. I said to you, I'm like this classic small town good girl. And so I had to learn if I had enough passion for an idea, I had to figure out a way to get around that gatekeeper. Because what do gatekeepers do in our organizations? They're afraid. They're afraid of a new way of thinking. They're afraid of going forward and trying something. Often they like to hang on to the power, what little power they have. And so um, I just would create, again, these series of challenges. To me, it was this notion of no is not yet. Um, so when someone would say no, I'd kind of go, huh, I think that's an invitation to say you mean not yet. And I, as I said earlier, I see this time and again where people come in and they're told no, and you never hear from them again. And you're like, well, what is, what, what? I thought you liked that. So this, this, what you think we're testing in our teams is resiliency, we're testing in ourselves. Um, and I think you, if you manage teams or you have, you're a project leader, when somebody comes to you and the answer is no, I think you have to give them good feedback. Why is the answer no? So maybe we'll go to some of your time at GE. So you were at NBC, you were doing communications, and you get a call from Jack Welsh. Yeah. And he asked, maybe I'll put out asked in quotes, for, for you to come work for him at GE. How did you think about it at that moment, and what did you learn? He called me up to his office, said, I'd like you to come work here, uh, head of advertising and communications, and I am gonna be leading a big succession. And basically, I'm, I'm putting a transition team together. I don't, it, it, I, I went back and this head of HR who had been a mentor to me said, you know you can't say no. And, um, and I don't know why, but that was the way I felt. Um, it was my finishing school, my global school, my business school. And what did I learn from working with Jack? I mean, one, he's this revered, iconic CEO. If, you, if you've gone to business school, undoubtedly you've studied 800 case studies about Jack. Um, there were some good and, and, and not good things about working with him. The good things were he just loved connecting with people. He really did want the best out of people. Um, and I'll give you an example. He used humor to do that. Um, he, uh, he, had, he had this phrase. Um, where he, he, you, he would tell you, he was very candid, he would tell you you're either a pig or a prince. He thought it was kind of funny, but um, I, he would come up to you and he would like, if you did a bad job, he'd say, you're a pig. Like, I'm a pig? Mm -hmm. Here's why. You know exactly every reason why you're a pig. Or you're a prince. Never a princess. You're a prince. And a prince, you got like a princely bonus and handwritten note and you felt like you were amazing. And so that ability to know where you stood with him was very, very powerful. With that came a lot of kind of command and control and micromanagement and, you know, he kind of doled out all the answers and it was appropriate for that time. But I think what it may have done a little bit in the culture was instilled kind of a um, everybody waiting, looking up for the answer, as opposed to maybe some 
sort of self-initiative and, and judgment that was needed to kind of navigate some change that was coming. But he was an amazing uh, leader. Um, another, another example of kind of, I didn't, uh, his sense of humor was, uh, because I came from NBC, and I am a person, I'm a bit abrupt, um, I guess I would leave meetings quickly. I'd hang up on people, I yeah, got it, and hang up the phone. He called me into his office and he said, uh, you know, you gotta wallow in it. You just, you gotta take some time, get to know people. And I was like, you're Mr. Speed and Efficiency. What are you talking about? Well, I clearly didn't take his message because one day he called me on the phone. The phone hung up and I called his assistant. I said, oh, I just lost Jack. And she said, no, you didn't lose him. He hung up on you mm -hmm. because he wanted you to see what working with him, what talking to you is like. Like you, you're abrupt and you gotta stop. So I love that he took the time to teach me and use, some, use a sense of humor. So I always felt grateful for that. So you mentioned the prince and not a princess point. And we've certainly seen now evolution in terms of in, in the boardroom, in terms of leadership of companies as it relates to, to women. What do you think about the current environment, all the messaging in the current environment, and what's going to really force us to change? Well, as somebody who's worked in business for uh, several decades, I, um, I guess I expected we'd be in a different place in terms of uh, more women leaders in our organizations, in politics. So that's disappointing to me. But I think Me Too and some of the other efforts have raised our awareness. People are, seem to have a sincere effort. I've, I've, I mean, sure, I've worked with some jerks in, in my day, but I've often felt at the heart of it, I've largely worked with good people who want to do the right thing. But they get confused because everybody wants to, most people want to hire people like themselves. And so often it's too easy to go and just hire people who you went to school with, who have a common, who look like you, who have a common way of thinking. And that excludes a lot of diverse backgrounds, gender, racial, racial uh, profiles. So I think we just can't do that anymore. And while you spend a lot of time at GE, which is a very large company, you've certainly been involved in earlier stage or startup type businesses. Talk to us about how, how you brought those two worlds together, how we make a difference by focusing on that community in addition to larger companies. I think we believed uh, that we just could not keep up with the pace of change just by doing it all ourselves. We needed to open ourselves up in many different ways, and one of them was to more partnership. And as you do that, you just start to realize startups um, are really good at seeing disruption early, greeting change, and that we could learn a lot by working together. But we had to create kind of a special lane and a team, similar to your team, that their job was to unlock the entrepreneurs within GE and to connect with the entrepreneurs outside. And there was a real connection. I mean, entrepreneurism is in all of us. We not all want to um, embrace it. And I sort of say, why do we just give that to Silicon Valley? But um, I think more and more you look at the ecosystem model of how business happens. Big and small companies have to work together. So you took on the role of chief marketing officer. And while I think in hindsight, in the way you describe in the book, it seems obvious how that was linked to innovation. But talk about how you use that role to make sure that innovation was taken seriously. At so Jeff Immel comes in, takes the role of, uh, of chairman and CEO, and he, he has a mandate of growing from within, um, f flexing more innovation in the company. And he said, we need a chief marketing officer. I want, I want your, you to create a team that's responsible for helping us drive new organic growth. That was our mandate. 
I have to remind, I, I had no marketing experience except coming out of media. Uh, AdAge said when I got named, the um, rare chief marketing officer with no marketing background. It was a little unfair, but true. Um, and so pretty quickly, uh, we had to amass an army of people who came with marketing, traditional marketing expertise. We put chief marketing officers in each division. We created an MBA grad program. And we just set aside to, to say, introduce marketing to the company, and a company that thought marketing's what you do at the end. Marketing's the stories you tell, the advertising, the trade shows. That's what our company thought. Um, yet the opportunity we saw was, let's take our, our job seriously. Marketing is about insights. It's about where's the market going. We got, our job was to get out in the world, to live, and just start to be um, sort of the conduit for, for trends and insights really to be the GPS of the organization. Where's the world going? Again, we didn't have traditional strategy in that context, so there was a piece of strategy that we grabbed onto. And I think what we ended up creating that I, I was really proud of was this kind of outside-in tension that was married in a company that had great technology but was very inside-out focused. Technically focused, we can do it because we can. Our challenge from a market-end view was what problem are we trying to solve? Should we do this? And pretty quickly, when you live in the market, you start to understand change, and you see things that are you know, opportunities for innovation. And um, that was the path we took. It was not easy. It's not like everybody's like, oh, great, we're waiting for you. <laughs> um, but it was not a path. It was, no one else was doing it, so it was kind of an easy thing to grab. If you look at General Electric, certainly was a large conglomerate. Today still has a lot of different businesses. There's a lot less large. Yeah. There feels to be a, a reasonable trend, not just at G, but in other places where companies are simplifying their portfolio. Do you have a perspective on, on why that is? Is there is there part of the storytelling that's linked to that, which is as you get bigger, as you get more complicated, as you have more businesses, it's harder to link that together in a story? Or are there other things that you would notice? You know, I don't know if the industrial conglomerate is dead. I mean, it certainly seems to be. And I think I think we knew that end was coming. I think if anything, we could have, we could have and should have moved faster. Um, but I think what often gets lost in the mix is just the complexity that comes with these conglomerate companies. There was a lot of complexity. I mean, GE was in a lot of different businesses that were complex industries and businesses. And so you try to solve complexity with complexity, and that just doesn't work. I think at the end of my time there, I think we, we were really starting to appreciate the need for speed, the simplification certainly of the portfolio, of the way we worked, of the bureaucracy that is in any organization. So I do worry today for all of our sake about kind of the law of big numbers. Um, I remember in my early time at GE going to presentations and literally people would get up and write, trees grow to the sky as a metaphor for the future that GE was just gonna grow at that rate forever. And we believed it. And with that created a lot of complexity. And I think as investors, maybe we need to be asking a bit more of that question of the companies we partner and invest in. How realistic is this? What kind of complexity? How less risk averse are you? How much of your time and energy, anyone who studies science knows more complexity zaps more energy. So we're cheering on Amazon right now. And I think we might say it's a new model of a kind of conglomerate in the making. Um, are they more risk averse? Take Google as another one. Are they, are they more challenged in a way? And when do we start to worry about that? Um, so I do worry for all of us. How do you, how do you think about that, Stephanie? As you yeah, I think it's hard to generalize based on 
the, the type of company, but when we, and I'll go back a little bit to my investment banking days, there certainly is a trend towards what we would call more fit and focus, which is the ability to focus in a specific area because then, to your point, you're maniacal about what's going on in that area. But it is hard to generalize across companies because there's certainly maybe more R&D focused companies where they're able to take the center of what they re do really well and take that technology and move it out towards different parts of their organization. But it's important that the complexity doesn't overwhelm the synergy of bringing those things Yeah, and I think together. at GE we had that, I, I was one of the great things about there was that R&D center. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And in some ways, a lot of our storytelling and our strategy was trying to unpack that. I, I wish we could have done even more of that. I mean, it certainly was at the heart of our storytelling. But I'm not sure we still could explain why the R&D connected an aviation business, a power business, a healthcare business. Um, it did, but it, it was the complexity got the story, made the story much harder to tell. It overwhelmed it. It overwhelmed it. Yeah. You, you started talking about some of the newer tech companies. Maybe we'll talk about Steve Jobs for a minute. Um, this was surprising to me um, that you had been offered, I think, not once but twice to work with Steve Jobs, and you ended up ultimately not, not doing that. So maybe you can talk about that decision, how you feel about it in hindsight. Yeah, well, since I called my book Imagine It Forward, that was an example of me not imagining forward. Certainly the um, economic trade-off that I made. Um, <laughs> you would not call me a good investor in terms of the financial decision. Um, but yeah, I was working at NBC my last time. I was leading digital. There was a lot of just anxiety in the industry and my company. And, um, and I had a tough time. And so I was working with Apple as we were doing digital. And I got to know the folks. And they, they said, hey, come work here. And, and twice I got uh, an opportunity to meet with Steve and be offered a job. It just wasn't the right job for me either time. And um, it was really hard to get to that decision because he wasn't yet the Steve Jobs. They had just they had, hadn't yet introduced the iPhone. They had iTunes. Um, that's where we got to work with them. And I remember the last time I talked to him, he said, big things are going to happen here. Just mark my words. We're going to be an amazing company. I mean, how many CEOs say that, right? You're like, yeah, right. I remember my husband and I sitting there doing that. We were at our, din our dining room, our kitchen table doing, I mean, they didn't pay a lot of cash, right? And then the options. It was like, how big can these really be, right? <laughs> I mean, how big can this ever be? Um, but I, I had this process of kind of, I still saved the paper today. You can tell it, it meant something to me of kind of my decision architecture. Like, why should I do it? Why not? And I slept on it, and then I'm like, it wasn't right. I had a good strategic filter, but also, I think I was a bit afraid of it. It was I, I was incredibly loyal to my company. And so I shared it in the book because it was a moment uh, that I often went back to mixed with regret, what could have been, but also saying I chose to go forward this way because I also knew what was going to be right for me. And I think we all have those moments of, of that, those kind of decisions. Um, and so I shared that one in that respect. So you were at NBC right in the middle of digital yeah. disruption, and then you put yourself right there in the middle, and you spent time on Hulu. Can you talk about what it was like to be directly at the center of the firestorm around digital transformation? Yeah, so I had gone to NBC, I mean GE from NBC, chief marketing officer. We launched a disruptive uh, effort in green tech. And so I got a bit of a reputation as somebody who was good at change and taking on these things. So they said, oh yeah, you're going to go back to NBC and, and digital's happening. And um, it was right at the time YouTube was emerging. So I take you back 10 years. Cat's playing the piano on video. <laughs> 
Everybody thought that was so cute, ha ha ha. And yet they were also panicked about it. Oh my gosh, what if these cats like take off? Like we don't know how to do that. So there was this kind of weird existence of people were poo-pooing this disruption and they were fearful of it. And I put a team together of digital disruptors and I hired a lot of great people from outside. And we set up a dynamic that unfortunately I, I would not recommend and I repeat, I've been part of it and I've seen it repeated where you kind of set up the cool kids and the not cool kids. Um, and I brought in a lot of digital Turks and we were gonna make the digital future. I was out like doing media interviews, my hair blowing in the wind, trying to say, you know, digital's the future. And so we just kind of set up a lot of natural antibodies toward what we were trying to do. We had done a couple things that didn't work. Um, Fox at the same time had gone through their version of this. And so out of this panic, YouTube was bought by Google. So the two partners got together, Fox and NBC, News Corp and NBC, and we, we said we have to seed a way for digital media because everything we've done on our own has failed. And we see this happening. And I think it was really smart for those teams at the time. I, I mean, our team was just the conduit, but the leadership teams really were to, are to be commended to say, we can't do this. We got to come together. Hired an uh, a, a entrepreneur out of Amazon. He seeded and created Hulu and really created the mechanisms to make that work. Set it up outside the mothership, gave them access, freedom, different compensation. It was so formative and necessary, I think. Okay, so we'll do a very quick lightning round because we have to do lightning rounds. The business leader you most admire. I get to work with Phil Knight and uh, the, he's no longer on the board, uh, or he's an emeritus at Nike, but it's been so amazing to watch a founder-led company and the founder's still around. I really am in awe of him. His book, Shoe Dog's a must read. It's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, excluding Phil Knight, entrepreneur you most admire. Oh, there's so many of them. I have to say Jeff Bezos really, really does, does, a, does quite a great job, I think, at, at scale. Your favorite place to travel? Wherever I haven't been. The last book you read? The last book I read was uh, Orlando. I have been going back reading, rereading some classics, but I never read Orlando by Virginia Woolf. And so I love this idea of just fluidity, not only of gender, but I think fluidity for all of us to think about fluid states of mind. It really inspired me. What series are you currently streaming? Um, the, is it The Incredible Mrs. Maisel on, um, on Amazon and also Forever, which is kind of this funky afterlife series. Best advice you've ever gotten? The best advice I think would have been the Jack Welch, you know, learn to wallow in it, to take your time, get to know people. I, I feel like the connections I, as a shy person, sort of being able to connect with others has been sort of the joy of life and, and work. And I'm glad I was encouraged and kind of gave myself permission to do that. Thank you for being Thanks, here. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you all for having me. Thanks a lot. This podcast was recorded on December. 4th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast.
In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.